Well, let me encourage you at this time to take out a copy of God's Word, and we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, as we continue our new sermon series in the book of Romans, chapters 5 through 8, and we're going to be continuing this morning, uh, Romans chapter 5, and verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While my son John is deployed overseas, I have been babysitting his Jeep Grand Cherokee. I drive it to work many days. Last week I left the office to go home for supper and the key wouldn't work. I tried the fob, no lights came on. I thought, well, maybe I hit the wrong button. I tried the other button, nothing happened. So I went up to the driver's door. I put the key in and wouldn't go in all the way, but I tried turning it anyway. Nothing happened. I turned the key over, put it in again, tried turning it, nothing happened. I thought, what is wrong with this key? Nothing was wrong with the key. I had the wrong car. Terry and Steve, I'm sorry if you find metal shavings in the, uh, the lock of your red, boxy-looking Toyota. I think it's a Toyota. Got me thinking that sometimes we might use the scripture like that. Got a perfectly good key, an orthodox text, a true and worthwhile doctrine, but we try to misapply it, try to open the wrong door with it. In one-on-one -on -one counseling, a pastor might take a proverb about laziness, rebuking people for laziness. The problem is that the, the counselee is already a workaholic and may only feel guilty that he isn't working harder. Or Job's friends 
I don't know if you ever noticed, if you read through the book of Job, that they say a lot of true things. Very biblical things. You can find them in the wisdom literature of the Bible, and you can find them in the Old Testament prophets and in the Psalms. The problem is they were trying to apply them, perfectly good keys, to a situation that didn't fit. Last week, when we looked at the first paragraph of three that Drew just led us in reading, we encountered these words. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. That's a great key. You, you probably wouldn't want to try it on the Yates family this week. Most of you probably know about 23-year-old Melanie Yates sitting in her living room reading a Bible story to her seven-month-old when a bullet from a senseless street action went through her window, hit her in the head, and she died, leaving a 23-year-old husband and two young children. You don't want to go to a family in that kind of pain and say, we rejoice in our sufferings. I said last week that Romans 5 does not give us a complete theology of suffering. We need the lament psalms as well. We need other glimpses of hope that the Bible gives us. And sometimes, frankly, we ought not try any key on a hurting heart, but just be silent. But Romans 5 does contribute to our theology of suffering. And I don't take anything back from last Sunday's sermon. I just caution you before beginning this Sunday's sermon on how we use these great gospel truths. That said, I will tell you that today's text gives us a key that fits every heart. The good news that we hear in Romans 5, 6 through 11, is for everybody, in all circumstances, at all times. Some people have heard it before and will not object to hearing it again. Some people may have heard it, but it's never sunk in. Others may have never heard it, but everybody needs what we have in the second and third paragraph of the text we have read. Join me in praying that God would uh, help us get from it what we're supposed to. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use the key of this text to open every heart. Those sitting here on Sunday morning, those who tune in at home or later in the week. May those for whom the gospel is still a strange alien story embrace it by faith. If that's going to happen, your spirit will have to do what a preacher can't do. That is awaken faith through the scriptures. And for those of us who have embraced the gospel, it is our hope for time and eternity. Let these paragraphs rekindle great gospel joy 
as we reflect on your nearly unbelievable love for unworthy us. This we ask in the name of Christ, whom you sent to die on the cross for us. Amen. In 1952, Richard and Ray were in a foxhole in Korea, waiting for orders, kind of joking with each other, both of them eating chocolate bars, when a grenade landed in their foxhole. Richard casually threw his candy wrapper away, laid down on the grenade, winked at Ray, and then the grenade exploded, his body absorbing the explosion. Rarely, verse 7, will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Soldier dies for his comrades in arms, a husband takes a bullet, sheltering his wife so that he dies and she lives. A mother wraps her body around her little one and she goes through the windshield, but the child lives. Doesn't happen very often, which is why we notice it when we hear about it or read about it. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, and, and some interpreters think that Paul makes a distinction between the righteous man and the good man. I'm inclined to think he's just varying his vocabulary. Uh, if there is a difference, it's, it's not great. For a good man, somewhat might possibly dare to die. It does happen. But God... But God... demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for good people. He didn't die for his friends, his comrades in arms. He died for sinners. The Son of God threw himself on the grenade, took the bullet, went through the windshield, was nailed to the cross for unworthy you and me. And what he did there brought hope from despair. Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Preparing for this morning, I looked at a book of sermons on Romans. I didn't find anything that I could use on, on chapter 5, but I saw something interesting in the introduction to the book. The author said, some who read this book will think that I have said too much about sin. Too bad. No apology. Sin looms large in Romans because Paul knows it is a large problem with eternal consequences. And we're sinners. John MacArthur was flying to El Paso to do a men's conference, and I'm going to let him tell the story. Bear with me as I read his words. He said, I was working on the plane on some thoughts, and I had my Bible open. 
I was sitting next to a man from Iran who kept glancing over and looking at what I was doing. And finally he said, may I ask you a question? I'm from Iran. I'm new in America. I see you have a Bible, and I don't understand American religion. What's the difference between a Catholic, a Protestant, and a Baptist? I gave him a little explanation, and then I said, can I ask you a question? Do Muslims have sin? Well, of course I know they do. I just wanted to hear him say it. Oh, yes, he replied. We have so many sins, I don't even know all the sins. Really, I asked. Well, can I have another, ask another question? Do you do those sins? All the time I do those sins, he said. In fact, I will be honest with you. I am going to El Paso to do some sins. Do you mind if I ask what sins you're going to do in El Paso? He said, well, I met this girl, and I'm going to El Paso to do some sins with her. I said, how does God, as you understand God, feel about your sins? Oh, it's very bad, he said. Very bad. How bad is it, I inquired. He said, I, I could go to hell. I said, you don't want to go there, do you? No, he exclaimed. Well, then why do you keep doing these sins? I prodded. I can't help it, he confessed. I asked, well, is there any hope for you? He said, I hope God will forgive me. I said, why are you so special that he should do that? Why should he forgive you? I don't know. I just hope, he responded. I said, well, I know him personally, and he won't. Well, that blew his mind. He said, you know God personally? What do you mean you know God personally? I said, I do know God personally, and I can tell you he will not forgive your sin. He can't look on iniquity. He's angry with the wicked every day, and he's going to cast them into eternal hell. But would you like to hear some good news about your sin? Yes, I would, he answered. So I explained the gospel to him. What gospel? What good news? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the other words that Romans 5 uses to describe our desperate need, verse 6, powerless. When we were powerless, unable to do anything about our sin problem. I can't help it, said the Iranian on the airplane, and he speaks for all of us. And maybe your sin is not the same as the one he was planning to commit in El Paso, and maybe by determination and good mentoring you have overcome some bad habits, but can you live a sin-free life that earns you a sin-free home with a sin-free God in God's sin-free heaven? Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg confessed to uh, an interviewer at age 72, a few years back, that mortality was becoming more real to him. He was just amazed at how many of his classmates had already died. 
And the author of the interview concluded this way, but if Bloomberg senses that he may not have as much time left as he'd like, he has little doubt about what awaits him on Judgment Day, Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said with a grin, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm going straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Well, it's not even close, but not in the way Bloomberg meant. We can't possibly overcome the barrier between us unholy as we are, and a perfectly holy God. We're powerless to do it, Paul says. And some people, even people who wouldn't be as cocky as Michael Bloomberg, still imagine that God helps them that helps themselves. <laughs> they even think that's in the Bible. The gospel is that God helps them that can't help themselves. They're powerless. While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. There's another descriptive word, ungodly. Sinners, powerless, ungodly. What's that mean? It means that apart from God's transforming power in powerless us, we disobey the law of God, we disregard the counsel of God, we scorn the wisdom of God, we ignore the word of God, we make light of the holiness of God, we devalue the gifts of God, we belittle the glory of God. We're godless. And we're enemies. Did, did you see that in verse 10? When we were enemies. Oh, you might chafe at that word. You might think, oh, I I'm not an especially religious person. I don't know as much about God as you church people do, but I'm not God's enemy. Don't chafe at this word. Let the key of Romans 5 open the door of your heart to the truth about you that God wants you to see. You are not God's foxhole buddy. You are not a well-meaning guy who might fall a little bit short of true friendship. You're in the opposite camp. I don't know if it's a true story or one of those legends that grows up around people like George Washington, but I read that during the Revolutionary War there was a faithful preacher of the gospel named Peter Miller who um, lived near a man who hated him intensely for his Christian testimony and preaching. In fact, this man violently opposed him and ridiculed Miller's followers one day, this unbeliever was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. And hearing about it, Miller set out on foot to intercede for the man's life with General Washington. Washington listened to the minister's earnest plea, but told him he didn't feel that he should pardon his friend. My friend? <laughs> Answered Miller, he's not my friend, he's my worst enemy. What? said Washington. 
You walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy? That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant your request. With pardon in hand, Miller walked the the 60 uh, miles back to the place where his neighbor was to be executed and arrived as the prisoner was walking to the scaffold. And the traitor saw Miller and exclaimed, Ah, here comes preacher Miller to gloat over me when I die. And was astonished as the minister stepped out of the crowd and produced the pardon that spared his life. What, you say? God came all the way from heaven to earth to die for his enemy? That puts the matter in a different light, doesn't it? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists, evolutionary biologist, who has debated Christian thinkers, was debating Oxford mathematician John uh, John Lennox, who is a fervent Christian. And at one point, Dawkins pointed at Lennox and said, he believes that the creator of the universe, the God who devised the laws of physics, the laws of math, physical constants, that this genius of mathematics and physical science couldn't think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come down to this speck of dust and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive. Well, it is pretty amazing, isn't it? Almost unbelievable. But it's not irrational. How might you answer Dawkins' objection to the Christian gospel? Well, here's an imperfect but maybe helpful illustration. Let's, let's just suppose that you steal and wreck my Mustang convertible. I don't actually have a Mustang convertible. Alas. <laughs> but let's suppose I have a 2021 GT, top of the line, Mustang convertible. You steal it and you wreck it. Well, I have some options. If you don't have insurance, I might go to court and request a court mandated payment. If I owned a Ferrari worth 1.5 million, you may never pay it off. You'd always be in my debt. Or another option is I, I could forgive the debt. What am I doing if I choose to forgive you? I'm, absor- I'm absorbing the cost. I'll have to pay the price of having the car fixed. You don't have a debt to pay, not because there's no debt, but because I paid it all. Not only that, I'm choosing to absorb the pain of your treatment of me, the injustice, the unfairness of it. I just just have to release all that. I'm choosing to give you friendship and acceptance, even though you deserve the opposite. 
And this is always how forgiveness works, even if there is no cash penalty involved. The one doing the forgiving chooses to absorb the cost of the wrong. And that's what the God-man did when he was nailed to a wooden cross. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. We could stop right there and praise God for all that he has done for us in Christ, but our text goes on to speak of what he will do for us in Christ. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see the pointing to the future? We often use salvation language in the past tense. We say, oh, I was saved back in 1975. And that's not inaccurate, but the salvation message of the Bible also looks forward to what awaits us, including on the judgment day and including in, in, in eternity. And do you see the logic of Paul's how much more language? If in the past, when we were God's enemies, he did this for us, what won't he do now that we are his reconciled friends? And if a dying Savior did so much for us, what is a living Savior going to do for us? By his resurrection, he defeated death, taking the sting of death out for us. He pours out his Spirit on us. He prays for us. He's coming back for us. And he'll save us on the day of wrath. There, there is a coming day of God's wrathful judgment, verse 9 says, a day when God will vent his holy hostility toward evil. John MacArthur didn't mince words with his seatmate on the plane when he said, God cannot look on iniquity. He's angry with the wicked every day and he's going to cast them into eternal hell. That's even more unpopular than the sin language in Romans. We don't like to think about God's wrath and hell. But I'll tell you this, the Bible is every bit as clear on wrath as it is on love. And the loving Jesus who bled and died for us actually had more to say on the subject of hell than any other speaker in the Bible. This Jesus who bled and died for us. Our text says, verse 9, that we were justified by his blood. In his book, Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease that the boy had recovered from two years earlier, and her only chance for recovery was a transfusion 
from somebody who had previously conquered the disease. And since the two children had the same blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to Mary, the doctor asked? Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. And, and then he smiled and said, sure, from, for my sister. So the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. Mary, pale, thin. Johnny, robust, healthy. Neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny smiled at her. But when the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, his smile faded. And he watched the blood flow through the tube. And when this ordeal was almost over, he said in a shaky voice, Doctor, when do I die? That's when the doctor and the parents understood his hesitation. He thought giving his blood meant he was going to die. Jesus Christ, the God-man, actually did die when he shed his blood for sinners, powerless, ungodly, enemies. If you have never done so, I urge you to accept the pardon and eternal life that he offers you free to you, but costly to him. And if you have done so, verse 11 tells you how to respond to this message. Having talked about salvation past, verses 6 through 8, and salvation future, verses 9 through 10, verse 11 talks about our present life of grateful rejoicing. Not only is all this so, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This theology leads to doxology. Let's worship.